Good evening. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Richmond. Such a blessing it is to be able to gather together, even virtually, uh, midweek, and just read the scriptures together, pray together, worship together, such wonderful worship to start with, and just um, spend this time in fellowship and uh, drawing closer to the Lord. So thank you once again. Welcome. My name is Trevor. For those that don't know me, I am the ministry coordinator here at Calvary Chapel Richmond and just am so blessed and excited that we can spend this time together. Tonight, I've titled our time in God's Word, Our Lasting Choice. And we'll be reading through some scriptures together and we'll be discussing how these things apply in our life today. And then as we start, we'll start the evening reading some verses, some quotes, reading some definitions, and this will help us kind of set the stage, help, help us set the context for the uh, verses that we'll read and the things that we'll talk about. But first, before we get too far into this, let's take a moment and just pray and give thanks. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful and just thank you so much, Lord, that we can come before you this evening, spend time, Lord, in your word, spend time in your presence. Thank you for blessing us with your presence, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would empty us of the day. Lord, that you would empty us of ourselves. May we decrease and you increase. Lord, may you be honored and glorified. And Lord, that you would even go before us and prepare us, prepare our hearts, our minds, open our eyes and our ears to the things that you would have us here tonight, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the first word we're going to look at this evening is the word lie to lie. And it's not a great word, but it is a word that we are all familiar with, one that we see quite a lot in the world today. And uh, the Random House College Dictionary defines it as a false statement made with deliberate intent to deceive. The next word similar to lie is deceit. And again, using the Random House College Dictionary for reference, it defines this as an act or practice intended to mislead by false appearances or a statement. And so the difference generally that we see is that a lie is spoken and a deceit or something when you deceive and includes anything, whether it's words, written, deed, whatever it is, it's something that is used to try and make somebody believe something that is not true, and even in disguising it as the truth. And, I mean, we can turn the TV on uh, and see so many examples of this kind of unfolding before us today in the world. Unfortunately, we also see this in the church, and not this church, but in the church in general, we see a lot of deceit, a lot of lies, um, the type of preaching that's being done, the true word not being taught, spoken, we see all over the place. And that's one of the reasons why uh, revival is so necessary, so absolutely necessary. 
Now, in contrast to these two words, we have the word truth. And this is defined by dictionary.com as true or actual state of matter, or a verified or indisputable fact, proposition, principle, or the like. And the word truth is tossed around so much lately. We hear it all over the place. We hear it in our schools, in our workplace, the TV, movies. It's this idea of, well, this is my truth. I'm living out my truth. You have yours, whatever it is, and, and I have mine. And that is just not the truth. That's, that's false. That is deceit. I'm going to say this in love, and it is very contra contrary to what we uh, hear today. But if your truth, whatever the, you've decided is your truth is, if it is contrary to the word of God, it is a lie. It is false. It is deceit. And I don't think I'm old-fashioned in saying this. The word of God has not changed since it has been penned by men, but inspired by the spirit of God. And I'm not a hypocrite for saying these things because I'm openly a sinner, but only saved by his grace. It was he who tore the veil and opened my eyes and yours. He softened our hearts. The truth is, he did it all. He paid it all. It was Christ who bore our sins and died for us, and it was a death that we deserved, but he took that on. He is risen. We worship a risen Savior, and he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is the truth, nothing else. And there's so many ridiculous lies out there, so many things that are said as truth, but they're only meant to deceive and confuse and if you have any questions, any doubt about anything, open the Bible and see for yourself. Don't believe me. Read it in the Word yourself. So a couple of scriptures that we want to look at tonight. The first is Psalm 101.7. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. And I love this verse because it talks about the first part, he who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. Now this is, it seems obvious, um, but as you know, when we are saved by the grace of God, he gives us, he grants us the blessing of being able to dwell with him in his father's house for eternity. And the deceit that is worked within the world, within our lives, removes our only chance of being able to spend eternity with him. And then it says, he who tells lies shall not continue my presence, shall not continue, because if you are still living in the world today and you have given your life to Christ at some point and turned away, or have never made that decision, what this verse is telling you is it, there's time, but you're not gonna, that time is gonna run out. So, Psalm 101.7. The next is a quote from Leonard Ravenhill, who's a man who rarely held back. If the whole church goes off into deception, 
that will in no way excuse us from not following Christ. So it doesn't matter what we see around us. It doesn't matter that maybe we're, we're, we hear things and we see things going on. That doesn't give us an excuse. We know what the Word of God says, and it's that that we need to be obedient to. Next, Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitfully above all things, sorry, deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's really no commentary that can uh, do justice to that verse. It's very self-explanatory. And then the last, J.C. Ryle, what would you expect? Sin will not come to you saying, I'm sin. It will do little harm if it did. Sin always seems good and pleasant and desirable at the time of commission. And I love this verse. It reminds me of, um, you guys remember a couple years back, Pastor Tim was teaching, and he used this analogy, and I don't know if it was one that he made up or one that he had read somewhere, but he said, Satan doesn't stand there with a sign saying, this way to hell. Matter of fact, he says, has a sign saying, this way to heaven. So he even uses things that, you know, look like would be good, pointing to the right direction, quote-unquote, but really it's, it's a path to hell. So, um, you know, these things that we come across look fun. They look, they look like, hey, who's going to find out? No one, no one would ever know. Um, and at the time that you're committing these things, it looks like it's very pleasing, and it may be even pleasing in your flesh, but uh, that is not what we should be doing. And so, turning to our first uh, scripture that we'll kind of read through tonight, outside of these opening things, we're going to be looking at the book Acts and the book of John. So first, in the book of Acts, we'll read verses 1 through 11 that will uh, kind of tell us a story, the first story that will contrast with something different. And if you don't have a Bible in front of you, there's plenty of online Bibles that you can um, log into and, and start reading along. So book, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, it says, But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of that price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, 
and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her with her husband. So great fear upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And it's interesting that when Ananias fell down dead for the deceit and for the lies that he told the apostles, really he lied to God. He fell down and it says that those that were there were, were afraid. And then when his wife, same thing happened to her, it said the church was afraid, as if the one death wasn't enough. So it's interesting that we see this a lot, these repeating things. It takes a lot to get our attention sometimes. And then for context, uh, with, these, with this first set of verses, the previous chapter in Acts 4, it tells about how these believers were selling everything. And they were selling these things for distribution to those that were in need. And there's, there's a lot of verses here, and we don't have time to necessarily dive deep into them. But one thing, a couple of things to highlight here, what we see is here, this husband and wife made a decision to deceit, they, to, to, to deceive, to lie. But they didn't lie to the apostles, even though it was the apostles they were speaking to. They actually lied to God and then paid the price for their lives. What if our punishment for a lie that we spoke was death? Because let's face it, we've all lied. And if that were the case, none of us would be here. And we won't even get into how Peter knew of their deception. How he didn't say, you're lying to me, but the price of the land, even though it was part of the, inter the interaction, but he was lying to God. And we're not going to get into how Peter knew through discernment that this was going on. That's for another different teaching. So this first section is about people and their greed, their deception, conspiring. The next is a little bit further in the book of Acts, chapter 5, and it's verses 26 through 32. And again, it talks about how Peter and the apostles were imprisoned and standing trial. Now, this wasn't the first time this happened to them, uh, but we read about this event. It says, Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you to not teach in this name? And look, you had filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intended to bring this man's blood on us. Obviously, they're talking about Jesus, but don't you find it interesting that they couldn't even bring themselves to say his name? But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to the, be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And we read that after this, Gamaliel, one of the Pharisees, stepped in, gave some advice, which they listened to. 
Now they also beat the apostles and they set them free. Whom, by the way, continued on preaching and teaching and um, doing the things that they were said they were no longer doing. But it also says that they were, um, in reference to their beating, in verse 41, that they left rejoicing. Now, mostly when we're detained or imprisoned, if we are released, we are rejoicing because simply we're released. We're just glad that we're no longer in chains, we're no longer in that impressive environment, um, with that authority kind of pushing us down, telling us what to do. I remember years ago, uh, this is yet another story involving police, and I probably have too many of these, but um, this time I was innocent. But my wife and I were uh, living in L.A., and we were, had gone to the beach for the day. And we were down in Santa Monica, and we had parked on the pier. And we were leaving the beach, leaving the pier. And as we left the pier, you kind of just go straight through the intersection and then onto the road, and, and there you go. So we're driving up the road, driving home, and we get to the first intersection, no problems. But as we continue up this road and as we pass through intersections, we see the first police officer, the, f the car, and then the following one, the next one, the next one. And literally there was, there was a lot of police cars. I'm not even sure how many had joined this convoy. And they were all driving behind us. And I thought to myself, what did I do? I, I didn't run any red lights, I wasn't speeding. And even if I had been, it wouldn't warrant this amount of police presence. And evidently, when they were comfortable, they, they lit us up. The lights turn on, we pull over, they pull them behind us. And you know just from regular being pulled over that sometimes it takes a while for the police officers to actually get to your window. This was a long time. We sat there for a while. And finally, the police got to our door. They asked us you know, for a driver's license, all that stuff. We gave it to them. And then he immediately didn't say anything, maybe thank you, and then went back to his car. And again, he was there for a long time. And we're like, what did, what did we do wrong? What is taking so long? And I happened to glance in the back seat, and we had purchased a couple of paintings. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but it's paintings that somebody does solely from spray paint. And it's really cool. They have you know, different things they do, but it looks like they used a brush. Anyway, we had bought a couple of those for some family members, and they were sitting in the back seat. But the thing about those is because spray paint's used, it really smells like gas a lot. It smells like that spray painty gasoline smell. And that's important because finally the police officer comes back to the car, and he says, so do you know why I stopped you? Where, you, where were you going? And I said, well, we were at the beach. We're going home. No, I, I don't know why you stopped me. And he said, well, your vehicle was seen leaving the scene of a Molotov cocktail bombing of a tour bus. And matches the description of two occupants and this truck. And obviously it wasn't us. He understood that, and luckily he let us go. I thought it was kind of ironic, though, that the car did smell like gas because of the paintings. But when he let us go, he gave everything back. He said, have a good night. I rejoiced because I was no longer being held on the, at the side of the road. And that's how most of us 
deal with rejoicing in these matters. But that's not the cause of the apostles rejoicing. They re we read that they rejoiced because they counted it worthy to suffer shame for his name, for the name of Christ. They, the suffering that they endured was a blessing to them. And they understood they didn't deserve it. They didn't, under, they didn't deserve the beating. They didn't deserve the pain. But they also didn't commit a crime. And they didn't deserve it to suffer the pain and the, the, the ridicule that they went through. But by the grace of God, he allowed it. And I know that doesn't make a lot of sense in the world. It certainly doesn't make a lot of sense even in the church sometimes. But it does show something. It shows their commitment to the truth as opposed to the previous married couple, Ananias and, and Sapphira, their commitment to deceive. All folks we read about are making these conscious decisions. They're either allowing the will of God to flow through their lives or not. And let's look at ourselves kind of internally. When was the last time we were honest with ourselves and we think about what did we do? What did we devote our time to? What did we devote our finances to? Uh, was it to um, deceive our brothers and sisters? Was it to just, was it just pure enjoyment and entertainment? Was it for the will of God? We have to consider all these things even in our own lives. And it's interesting because we can make a lot of, of excuses when we think through these things. Well, I, I feel justified by doing this or by buying this or, or whatever the case is. But whatever we think these good reasons are, these excuses are, these things could be the very thing that the Lord wants to change in us, work us through. Because these may be the very things that hinder that continued growth. And so considering these things as followers of Christ and paralleling that with those who have yet to call upon Lord as Savior, we'll look at the next set of scriptures. That's John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. He said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, 
who was cured. It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who has helped did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. This man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now we know from the Nehemiah study that uh, we did with Pastor Tim on Sunday, uh, several months back, that the sheep gate that is described in, this, in the book of John is the northern part of the gate. Just for a point of reference. And so you may be asking, you've read these three pieces of scripture, what do they have to do with one another? Well, we'll get that to a second. But to, looking at the book of John, we'll break that down into three kind of subcategories quickly, just in the interest of time. The first is quandary. And we just read the verses. This guy had an issue. He was in this position where he wasn't able to walk or run or really move himself fast enough to get to the pool first. And for 38 years, that's a long time. Someone, someone always beat him to it. There was no one to help, no man to help. Nothing he could do would change this. And he was going to die long before he ever got to the point where he could get himself to the pool first. So how desperate do you think he was? And when I read this, I wondered, had he been trying to get into the pool the entire 38 years? Had it progressively gotten worse? I don't know. But then I thought, well, even if he had, you needed to step into the pool and he couldn't walk. You either, or you had to have somebody help you in, but everybody has their own problems, and I don't know of anybody who would forego their miracle being performed over yours. So this guy had no hope. He was doomed. But now Jesus knew he had been in this condition a long time and completely and knew that he was unable to help himself. But yet he asked him the question. And the second part of this is question. Do you want to be made well? Other versions ask it a little bit different. King James says, wilt thou be made whole? I love that. The Nasby says, do you wish to get well? And other versions are very similar in nature. But that doesn't, that seems to be an easy question to answer. I mean, of course, we would all say, well, yes, of course, heal me. Make me well. But there was a reason why Jesus asked it. I don't know if there are other people worse off in this place. It said everybody, most people were dying, they were laying, they had issues. The Bible doesn't tell us of everybody else's infirmities, but we know that this guy was truly in a position where he couldn't help himself. But it's funny, though, when we look at these things, if, somebody had, if I saw somebody in this position and, they, and I was thinking about how I could help them, my question would probably be, do you want to walk again? Because we don't have the ability to see everything. And we have many medical professionals in the body. You know that when somebody is injured, 
an assessment needs to take place. If somebody's in a car accident, the paramedics show up and they have to do an assessment because sometimes the worst looking injury is not the most life-threatening. We don't have the ability to see those things like Jesus does. So yes, of course, Jesus sees that this man can't walk. He knew that from the beginning of time, and then when he sees him, he knew that he had been in this position. But Jesus something, sees something far greater. And so this kind of brings us to our next part, our last part, qualify. When Jesus asked him to make him well, and listen to this man's response. He doesn't say, yes, please, or no, thank you, I'm good where I'm at. He starts talking about how there isn't anybody to help. In fact, he says there isn't another man that can place him in the pool. And the fact is, other people are faster. And I wonder why we are so limited in our way of thinking, in our responses. When God asks a question, we often put our own inabilities as the reasons as to why something's not being done. But I love how this miracle is from Jesus is described. And it, so it could be in our own lives we're facing an issue that can't be solved by another person. And it's certainly true for salvation. So if you're living for the Lord and you're up against something, yes, we're going to reach out to our brothers and sisters. We should, we're told to, for prayer. But it's really God who is going to make the changes. But we have to be willing for his will to take place for those changes to actually occur. Because what we see in the physical nature may not be the issue at hand, but maybe it's what God is using to get our attention. And so we still have to pay attention to these things. And so the man went through this thing Jesus' response to this was, rise up, take up your bed and walk. Jesus saw the greater need and fulfilled it. In John chapter 12, Jesus is talking about his death on the cross, and we don't have time to read about all of that. And you know, uh, this was the will of the Father. But Jesus says something that I think is truly astonishing, and something that I... When I read this, I, I want to adopt more in my life, but I'm still struggling with it. He said in verses 27 and 28 of John chapter 12, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I come to this hour. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. I think that's incredible. I think that's absolutely incredible. And thinking about this as far as applying this in our life, what if when we're tested during a trial, when we're at the point of being disobedient, when the flesh wells up, when we um, find that we can no longer go any further, 
We don't stop what we're doing. We don't shy away. We just stop and drop to our knees and say, Father, glorify your name. Again, I've tried to apply this in my own life. It is incredibly difficult because it requires strength that only comes from Christ himself. And so just some closing remarks as we are almost at time. And again, chapter 12, John says, um, later in that chapter, verse 42, we read about the rulers and the Pharisees. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So maybe you're listening tonight and you're at a point where you think, I believe in God. I believe that the Bible's true or mostly true. But you've never confessed Christ as your Savior. You've never accepted him to be your Savior and really put your full trust Surrender your life to him. Maybe you're at a point where, you know, you're, you're weighing that cost and you say, you know what, the, the, it's too much. It's too much to bear. I really need the praise of men and I'm afraid of what they may do. And I'm not making light of this. I, we know too well the dangers in some cases of accepting Christ as Savior, the persecution that takes place in many places around the world will, can get you killed for accepting Christ. So I'm not making light of this. I know it's the most important question anybody can ever ask. But I would ask that you read Matthew 10:28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. For life on earth is fast, and anything man can do is just as fast and fleeting. We know that our life is but a vapor. So when we make these decisions, the decisions that we make here on earth really do have consequences that last eternity. So if we've been saved for a long time, and are just struggling through the sanctification process, if we have yet to um, call upon Christ as Lord and Savior, our Savior is still asking this question, do you want to be made well? And we talked about truth and what people say truth is. We talked about lies and deceit and talked about some examples of this. But another truth is Christ is the only way to the Father. He does desire a relationship with you, a closer relationship with you if you've already saved. He made the way. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. And so thinking about these verses and applying them in your own life, if you are deceiving yourself or the people around you by actions that are being taken place outside of the sight of man, if you are not trusting fully 
in Christ, or if you've never made a decision for Christ, the question still applies. He's asked the question, what are we going to do with the response? How will we respond? Will we continue living a life of deceiving and lying and not being honest with God? Or are we going to submit to his truth? It's our choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time in your word. I pray, Lord, that if anybody is hearing this tonight and hasn't accepted you as Lord and Savior, I pray that today is a day of salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would break down those barriers, open eyes, open hearts, Lord, soften hearts. And I pray your will will be done, Lord. For those that know you and are struggling, I pray, Lord, that you would give them the strength and the ability to overcome those things that they need to put past them. I pray, Lord, that these things help them grow, help them trust in you more, Lord. And even if it's a thorn in the side, as Paul had, Lord, we pray that it would be a remembrance of you always being present, Lord, and always necessary. So, Lord, I just thank you for the time in your presence and your word. May you be honored and glorified in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.